everybody, and welcome to Mom Cooks Fast and Slow. I'm Alex Sullivan, and I'm delighted to have you at my kitchen table. Today, I have author and parent coach Jacqueline Blair Telgetter here to discuss parenting with ease among so many other things. We chat about finding appreciation in ourselves and our kids, styles of parenting, setting age-appropriate boundaries for our kids while offering choice, trusting our gut instincts, and of course, social media. I'm thrilled to share this conversation with you all. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for joining me on Mom Cooks Fast and Slow. Hi, Alex. Thanks so much for having me. I am so grateful to have you on. I have been looking forward to this interview for weeks now. So um, I'm glad you're here. And I cannot wait to talk about um, what you do as a profession, which is parent coaching, but also your new book, which I have right here um, called Parenting with Ease. And this, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you it's published in 2022. So very recently written. Um, and I read it. I loved it. So many great points um, and really nuanced ways of looking at parenting, which I really appreciate. Um, so I thought maybe we could kick it off with you telling us a bit about yourself, your path to becoming a parent coach, and then also a bit about the book Parenting with Ease. Okay, great. Well, I have four kids. Uh, right now, they have. I have two girls who are 14 and 13 and two boys who are 11 and 8. And I had a profession, I was on Wall Street, and I ended up retiring after I was pregnant with my second kid. So I know too, I know you were a working mom, I was a working mom. And then I stayed home with my kids and had four kids and I enjoyed a lot of it, but I also struggled a lot. And I noticed more than anything internally, I was really losing confidence in myself um, just felt a little lost. And so I explored different avenues of going back to work. And I took a great workshop by this woman named Lindsay Hurdy. She has, has a workshop called the trellis and she helps moms figure out what they want to do with their lives as young moms, you know, and what can I do that makes sense for me using my skills and my passions. And I discovered parent coaching. I had never heard of it. Just like you, right? You'd never heard of it. No, it's so funny. I, I had never heard of it either. And then, you know, I I stumbled upon you through a friend of mine and I was like, this is amazing. This is, you know, because I mean, we had talked kind of previously before this interview, but, you know, there's been therapy, which has been around forever where kids go through therapy or adults go through therapy. Um, but sometimes that seems like the avenue that uh, kids don't want to take, or it's a struggle, or it's not comfortable, or it's not natural. Um, and so the idea of a parent coach, it just seems so positive. It seems like, you know, when I think of coaching, it's be the best you can be, work hard. Um, and that idea put behind a parent is just, I, I think it it puts the power back in, in parents' hands and doesn't make it so defeatist or... Um, you know, the idea that you you need help and you're struggling. It's more like you're going to learn tools that are going to make you better at what you already do. Right. Um, so I love that idea of parent coaching. And, you know, you can go into kind of more about what that well, is. Well, yeah. And therapy is is the right choice for a lot of situations. But for for children, it's amazing how how much the parent can change to affect, to positively affect the child. 
And um, that's why therapy can sometimes be not as effective because the parents aren't being coached. The parents aren't changing. And um, my book talks a lot about how if you want your child to change like behavior, um, the respect, the way how they're doing in school, there's, there's so much you can do as a parent to affect that positive change. So I'm hoping we'll, you know, we'll get to a lot of that today. That's basically my general theme always is if you want your child to change, look within first. How are you contributing to the situation? Um, so like a lot of people's vocations, I felt pulled to parent coaching because I needed coaching. <laughs> I needed that kind of support. And so I learned so much. I uh, applied to the Parent Coaching Institute out in Seattle. I did distance learning from there for a year. It was a really, um, really strenuous workload. And I did tons of pro bono coaching and I finally got certified and it was an amazing experience. So with that, plus the coaching of my clients, plus my own experience, I do feel like I have um, a lot of messages to share to help people because um, there's, there's so much you can do as a parent to improve your situation. So much. And so many of us feel isolated or stuck um, in what we're experiencing. There's so much we can do and it's very doable action steps. So it's very exciting. So to kind of follow up on that. So, you know, it's funny you say you used to work on Wall Street. I used to work on Wall Street as well. Um, and when you are, you know, a, a person working in a job that has bonuses and promotions and I mean, especially on Wall Street, it was like eat what you kill and you're doing things that are giving you immediate gratification. Um, and with parenting, that's that's not always the case. Um, and, you know, on top of that, you know, actually yesterday, a Wall Street Journal article came out that showed what adults place high importance on today versus 2019. So, and one of the things was having children and 59% of adults put high importance on having children in 2019. And now that um, statistic is down to about 30% of adults putting high importance on having kids. Now, that doesn't mean that the people who have kids don't place high importance on parenting. Those are the people that wanted to become parents. But as you sit in society and you feel this kind of shift around what's important to people and you're looking at your job every day as a parent, maybe not necessarily being held up like it used to be, that can be a bit demoralizing and you're not getting the bonus for being a parent and you're not getting a, an award ceremony at the Oscars for being a parent. So, you know, what I loved about your book was finding gratitude and appreciation in parenting. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about how and start this conversation with how you get in that mindset when maybe not the rest of the world is, is giving you that immediate gratification that we once got from, say, working on Wall Street. Yes. Great points, because that was me. Uh, for many years, I thought, this is not rewarding. Um, I don't get a paycheck. I feel, again, that kind of hurt my confidence. What's the point? What's the purpose? I was really struggling um, because I wasn't feeling validated or appreciated in ways that, that, that I wanted to be. And that starts with ourselves, to be honest. And so I do a lot of work with parents on appreciating their efforts, appreciating their strengths and how they're using them to be great parents. Um, 
we rarely spend time appreciating ourselves, but it's super important because then when we start appreciating our efforts, we can tune in to things like um, tune into the moment and feel what I call aliveness. Okay. So aliveness for some people aren't familiar with this term, but it's these life enhancing feelings like joy and calm and peace, happiness, satisfaction. And whoever you are, whatever you're doing in the world, everyone wants these feelings. This is what life's all about, right? And usually these things are through connection. You, we feel these through connection. That's either connecting with ourselves, connecting with our child or nature. And so I've done a lot of work around this kind of mindfulness and it is deeply satisfying and deeply fulfilling in a way that now I have a new perspective on my role as a parent because I can take these moments in, appreciate my own efforts, appreciate the gift of the moment and putting those two things together are so fulfilling. So that's the kind of work I do with parents. So that parenting is rewarding and fulfilling and life-giving. So I love that. Um, what are, I guess, I guess this is like a twofold question to kind of follow up on that, but what are some of the best ways that you find parents can find fulfillment in parenting? And then also, why do you think parent coaching has become a profession? Why do we need someone to show us these, these windows into a fulfillment in parent that, you know, maybe why was that not something in the past or why do we need it that now? You know, yeah. Well, I think it developed along with life coaching and business coaching. So it's kind of a new trend in that sense. Um, a lot's changed in parenting. So before years ago, you could easily be an authoritarian parent and move along okay. So life felt a little easier in the sense that you could tell your child what to do and they would just listen because that's how society was raising children a generation ago and or two generations ago kind of in that frame. And culture has changed a lot. And so kids aren't just going to do what we tell them anymore. And that's okay. Because authoritarian parenting is not ideal for the optimal development of children. It's very much of a disciplinary, I tell you what to do without reason and you need to listen. I'm not, so it's not responsive. It's not nurturing. And that's not ideal for children. So, so now children kind of fight back more. And parents don't know what to do <laughs> because it's, you're not as in control. And that's a very uncomfortable feeling. So there's this dynamic of power struggles, um, children's verbal upset. That's really hard for us parents to endure. Uh, so there's a, there's a different dynamic now between parent and child. And so parents need new tools to navigate that. So I want to, well, I, I, I'm going to say push back here, but I think it's not a pushback. It's just like a lead forward okay. to authoritative uh -huh. parenting. So, you know, I, raise my kids as I believe an authoritative parent in the sense that when I say no, no means no. Mm -hmm. Like, so there's, there is no negotiation with my seven-year-old and five-year-old when it comes to what they are allowed to do and aren't allowed to do, which I think is 
a bit of that authoritarian style that you're talking about. But I say no, the answer is no. And I follow it up with a reason of why it's Mm no. Right. So there's, I, I sometimes feel like we, or at least the younger generations, have what you've been saying, learn to be easier with our parenting or um, want to be more nurturing. But that doesn't mean you take away the hard and fast lines that we have to set for kids at certain ages. So, you know, uh, I, I guess if you could kind of explain the difference between authoritarian and authoritative, Mm -hmm. because, you know, after reading your book and, and, um, you know, reading other research about it, authoritative parenting seems to be the most sought after kind of parenting that we want to strive for. Um, and I think sometimes people get confused with, you don't want to be an authoritarian person, which means you should let your kids run all over you and they get a say in, in what, how they're raised. And that's not necessarily true. Um, It's just how we handle those situations a little better. Yeah. There's three main approaches to parenting. There's the authoritarian, which we've covered. Then on the other end of the spectrum is permissive, which is overindulgent and really reluctant to set limits. And then the ideal approach is authoritative, which you mentioned. And that is demanding and responsive. So you're setting expectations, you have limits, high standards, and you're responsive. So you're nurturing, you're listening, you're offering choices. So it's a really nice combination. And the way I like to think about it is a container. You as the parent need to create a container. And that's your limit or your boundary that you say no and that's it. But within that container, there's all this freedom and choices. And that container is small when your children are small, and then it continues to grow as your children get older, where there's these general limits and expectations, but then there's choice and freedom so that our children feel autonomous. They're going to be more cooperative. They're going to have a strong sense of self when they are able to to feel free and have age-appropriate choices. You build strong self-concept and a strong parent-child relationship. So I think that is really hitting the nail on the head, at least, you know, for me and and how I know I was raised with my parents, um, is that age appropriate Mm -hmm. decision making. Like it's when they're two, they should have very, very, like you said, the small box, like really, these are your limits. This is what is allowed. This is what you're capable of handling. And you can choose if you're having peas or eggplant for your, right? Like, yeah, I can give some examples. I can give some examples. Um, that's a great example. So mealtime, um, the, the, honestly, the best meal, meal strategy that I could offer is this is what's for dinner. We're, like, we're eating at 530 and this is what's for dinner. And you put something on the plate that you know your child likes, you know they like it. And then other options that are healthy and delicious. And then the child chooses how much to eat. That's a really healthy approach to to mealtime. But yes, I mean, offering two choices for a two-year-old is great. And that's for anything. You know, if they're struggling with getting dressed in the morning, two outfit choices, not the whole closet. Um, So that's that's a great suggestion. And then as the child gets older, more freedom. So um, another one I really love is bedtime. So in in the morning, a lot of kids get up really early and... 
I had a really early riser and I convinced myself as most parents do that they've had enough sleep. Um, they're fine, but it's not fine for a child to get up at five, five thirty in the morning. It's too early and they are capable of staying in their bed longer. So I work a lot on this with parents. So it's not this simple, but basically it's, you may, you, you, um, I expect you to stay in your bed till 7 a.m. What would you like to do in your bed if you wake up before that? Okay. So see how that's the container and then there's choice. Um, another, as the child gets older, another example would be, these are all from my, my own family. (laughs) This is all, I'm offering all my own experiences here. Um, for my high schooler, she wants social media on her phone. So the limit or the container is you may have one social media app. Which one would you like? Okay. That's just an example, but do you see that's this, this continuous theme? Those, right. Again, those conversations, the, the, the box yeah, and the choices within. I mean, that's, that's, yeah, that's a great metaphor. I love that metaphor. <laughs> Good. Um, so in terms of how you have these, these discussions, the communication between you and your child, you know, I know in your book, you had mentioned family meetings, um, or or just being in communication with your kids about things. Um, you know, if you wouldn't mind, explain to me how that communication looks in the different age brackets. So from two to 18, how do, how does that communication change between you and your kids? Well, I would say three or four and under, they're really not ready for family meetings. Um, but after that, they are. And there's lots of ways to, to do a successful family meeting. But the great thing about family meetings is that everyone's job is to listen, to share with respect, and to uh, raise issues out of the moment. So emotions are are settled, and that's key. So... For a younger child, um, it's just a great way to talk through things out of the moment, like I said. Um, For an older child, well, let me pause and just say that family meetings are great when we're talking about general expectations for the house, um, for the family. But I have four kids, and so I can't have a family meeting about Ava's um, field hockey you know, so it really is kind of family discussion that, that something that affects the whole family. And so in that context, some things that are helpful are you have a pen and everyone takes a turn with the pen. And when, you know, you get to talk with the pen and then otherwise you are just listening. Right. And then you can, um, you can also change it up and you can do a family meeting about what you appreciate about each other. So you could go around and say what I love about somebody or a compliment to somebody in the family we do that at dinner. Our dinner time is more of our family meetings where we talk about these kind of things. Yeah, um, my that's exactly what it yeah. is. We we do din- dinner yeah. dinner and and it's not like okay we're gonna have a family meeting. It's like we sit down, yeah. we have dinner. It's a natural way to talk about it, to talk about our days, sure. talk about what's important. Exactly. But sometimes Jerry and I will get to like a limit with our kids. Like why why is there stuff all over the house? you know, or like, why are we always late for everything? You know, whatever it is. So, okay, let's sit down. Let, these are the expectations of you for the house. You know, what ideas do you have to, to do a better job? Or, um, you know, let's say it's about television during the week. 
we feel like everyone's slipping and watching more television. And so let's talk about as a family, what's best and what the rules should be. So those are great opportunities to have a conversation and to hear from everybody. That's that nurturing part, that responsive part. I care what you think. And I think that you have good ideas as a child and I want to hear them and we'll work it out together. Again, with that ultimate boundary that you're setting. Um, and then I just find it super helpful to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with my kids about a lot of things. So if it's behavior issue, if it's a problem they're having, I take my child and I separate them out of any situation, whether it's a television that could be distracting, family member, dogs, I take them and I have a sit down one-on-one eye-to-eye calm conversation. And I approach it as there's a general limit here, but I care what you think. And I want your ideas on how to work through this so that we're both comfortable. And that's just a very respectful way to communicate. And so it's, it's supporting mutual respect. I'm treating my child with dignity, but I'm also saying there's limits here. So, so I, I, let me ask you a little bit about that because there's nothing that drives me crazier than when, I see a kid having a temper tantrum or, or whatever. And the parent goes over with excellent intentions and wants to talk to their kid calmly and, and work through things. And the result is the kid throws an even larger temper mm -hmm. tantrum and is worse. And I, the Italian in me is like, take that kid <laughs> on the side. You tell him, I am going to rip you out of this situation immediately if you don't knock it off right now. Right. Yeah. Like, so, you know, there are times when it works to be calm and talk through your kid. And there are other times where you're like, I need to shut this down. Sure. Right. And, and so, you know, is there, is there a necessary evil of quote unquote losing your cool or, or getting that like authoritarian back up as a parent? And, and when do you see that, you know, happening? Um, I will say that I don't think it's ever the best choice to lose your cool on your kids because they've lost their cool. So now you're losing your cool, but you don't want them to lose their cool. You're not modeling the behavior that you're seeking. I agree with being firm. Firmness is still respectful. Um, a tantrum, I could go on, I could, we could do like a whole talk on tantrums, but basically when your child is tantruming or that upset, you can't reason with them at that point, most likely. Sometimes you can use empathy and like really name the feeling and they'll, they'll calm down. So if he's really crying and you could say, you're so worried about your brother ruining your toy so you're, so you're so upset because you're so worried about your toy. He could settle down. Um, if, if a teenager is like really, really nasty about something, you could mm -hmm. name what's going on. Like you're really mad at me because you want to go to this party and I'm not letting you. So you're just angry because you're afraid of missing out on what's going to happen. They might turn the corner. So those, those are methods to try. If it's not working, that means that your child is too far gone and, mm -hmm. and, and that's okay. Okay. They're upset right. as we all get too far gone. Yeah. Sometimes. So yeah. what's happening is they're they're the bottom of the, the back of their brain here is 
firing and it's overtaking their prefrontal cortex, which is their compassion and high level reasoning and problem solving. They can't access that. Their, their emotions are too high. So you have to have a cool down period before you talk to them. So I'm a big advocate of ignoring a tantrum, placing a child in a separate area for them to calm down. It's not a timeout. It's a, we both need to cool down. Then you come back and you have the conversation and you talk about ways that that child could problem solve differently through the situation. Okay. So there's, there's two, two things to kind of follow up on that is talking through feelings. And we, we had talked about this before we, um, you know, decided to do the podcast, but, um, talking through feelings, making sure we're identifying what our kid is feeling, what we are feeling. And then also, the beauty of silence, which my mom used on me all the time. Like I, you know, I, I remember sitting in a car with my mom as a teenager and I'd be, I was being nasty. You know, you're, you're just a teenager and you're, you're nasty. And my mom would say, why don't you think about what you're upset about? And then I'll talk about it with you, but I'm not going to do it like this. And then we would sit in the car and she wouldn't let me get out, but she wouldn't say anything else. Like, she was like, your behavior is inappropriate. We're going to sit here until you figure out what's actually upsetting you. And I'm not going to say anything. And then, you know, we'd sit there for five, eight minutes. And then eventually I'd cool off and I'd be like, okay, this is what's bothering me. So, you know, could you speak a little bit to why that works and what's going on there? Yes. Your mom's a smart lady. (laughs) So... We have to assume in every situation that our child is good, wants to do well, wants to feel like they belong. A child's number one purpose is to belong. So when they are acting out, they're likely very discouraged. And so we have to get to like what is behind this behavior. Okay, They don't want to treat us that way, but they are filled with emotions that are causing them to feel that way. And they're still learning how to navigate all this. So the number one thing we need to do first is make sure we are calm. We so easily add fuel to the fire by either being upset ourselves and speaking in a way that, you know, adds to this, or we're trying to fix it because we want it to go away. We want to help our child not feel this way. So we get in it and we try to fix it teaching and problem solving for them and questions. And it's too much. It's not what the child needs. So silence is a great option. Why? One, because it helps us stay calm. When you're silent, you can focus on your breathing. You can focus on where you're tense in your body and relax that. You can do some self-talk like reminders. My child is feeling something that's making them behave this way. I'm going to let them feel this, and I know this will pass. And then I can address it with respect. Okay, so the number one thing with silence is that it helps you create calm. And it helps diffuse the situation because you're not adding fuel to the fire. And you're creating space. Space is so important. You know, the child needs space to feel their emotions, to process them. If you can process your emotions, They're not stuck inside you anymore. So it's important to allow space for them to process. And then what I often do is something very similar to your mom, which is I'm going to stop talking now. 
I will speak to you when you're speaking with respect. Because it's the teenage thing or whatever it is, any age, really. If they're speaking disrespectfully, it's because they have got some big feelings. And so I'll say, when you're ready to speak with respect, I'm here. And that's awesome because it's saying, I believe you can. I believe you can be upset and work through it and be okay. I believe you know how to speak with respect. And I want to be here for you when you can be respectful. So there's a lot of great things happening when you say that. So this kind of leads into um, how kids work through challenges by themselves Mm -hmm. and how we need not always be trying to fix their problems for them. Um, And this is something that I I worry about with my kids is that sometimes, you know, school or parents or whoever, we're so quick to have our kids – think about their feelings all the time and talk through it with adults and talk. And sometimes they need to do it themselves. They need to either fail or do something wrong and see what that feels like, you know, what what that does to your belly when, when you know you did something wrong, you know, you weren't a good person or um, you tried really hard and you still failed and you need to sit with that Um, or a bully and, you know, mom and dad or your teacher can't always be there to solve the bullying problems. And we need to give our kids skills to deal with bullies or, or recognize when they themselves are being a bully um, and, and not always have an adult walk them through that. Yes. I love this topic. Um, when I stopped problem solving for my children, a massive weight was lifted off of me. I actually feel liberated that I don't problem solve for my children anymore. It is amazing. I highly (laughs) suggest this. Um, So not only do I feel lighter and calmer, which is a gift to my family, uh, I'm also supporting my children in their optimal development because I am giving them the opportunity to problem solve themselves. Our children are creative humans who have tons of great ideas. There's not one way to solve a problem typically. And when you allow them space and freedom to work through their challenges, they become, um, they have, their sense of self-worth becomes very strong. They feel competent, capable, um, can-do attitude, a feeling of, I can be upset and then I, and then I can be okay. Um, but there's ways to support this, not just ignoring. Um, right, there's specific right, yeah. strategies to support this. The the basic number one strategy is asking questions. So to flip a statement into a question. Another way you can say it is ask versus tell. This is one one of your most powerful tools as a parent at every age forever. Okay. It also invites openness. When you ask an an open question, um, you're, you're, creating connection. So I want to point that out too, because we have to always be focused on our relationship with our child and questions are create openness and connection. So the best way to ask questions are open-ended. So you can't answer it with a yes or no. Usually starts with what or how, and they're authentically curious. So you're taking all of your own problem solving and ideas out of the equation and you're saying, what do you think? What ideas do you have? How do you feel about it? 
And this is building so many life skills in your child when you can ask these questions. The, the, the reason parents have such a hard time with this is because we are letting go of control. And that's very hard for parents. Parents naturally are controlling because we want certain outcomes, because we are so often parenting out of fear. And I know that kind of sounds like a little extreme, but if you were to really notice yourself throughout the day with your child, you are likely experiencing fear, fear that they're going to fail, fear that you're going to be late, fear that they're going to do something at school that could embarrass them. And then you, I mean, there is so much fear. And so we want to control when we have fear. It makes us feel better, but it's not the answer. It's disconnecting us from our child and it's not giving them the life skills they need to work through their problems. So if you can notice a little bit how you're feeling in a moment and say, Ooh, I think I'm like, this is my own problem here <laughs> and let go and ask questions. That's the way to do it. But you can still maintain control with your box. I mean, like exactly. sometimes, sometimes exactly. I feel like saying you have to let go of control makes people go, Oh God, no. Right. But no, there's boundaries. There's no, for there's sure boundaries. boundaries. Oh yeah. There's yes. There's, there's control, but not authoritarian control. Right. There is, there is. Exactly. With my older daughter, you know, um, if she's speaking rudely, it's, you know, I understand that you feel upset and you can feel upset. You may not speak to me that way. So when you're feeling this frustrated, what ideas do you have so that you can be, still be respectful, you know? And she might say, well, maybe I need to go cool off my room or maybe I need to, you know, no matter what, be respectful. You know, she'll, she'll come up with some ideas and then they're going to happen because she came up with them. Okay, so I want to switch gears a little bit here, but I did want to a little bit talk about parental gut instinct. Um, you talk about that in your book, how sometimes your husband just has a gut instinct that works. There's a part in your book that I loved, and it was a quote that said, instead of Googling, turn inward. And I feel like that's a really difficult thing to do for people. I mean, at least in my generation, our millennial generation, we kind of grew up always, we, we had the internet, you know, everything was, all this information was at the tip of our fingers. And we got used to this idea of, well, I'm not an expert in this. And I have all this information on the internet. The internet will know how to handle this situation or the internet will tell me what I'm supposed to do. And I recently had an experience with this with my son. You know, he asked, I won't get into the details, but he asked me a question that I was not prepared to answer. And my immediate reaction was like, okay, I should turn to the internet to, to Google it. Uh, like how to handle this question with your seven-year-old child. And then I sat back and I thought, you know what? I don't, I don't want to know what the internet has to say. And instead, I called my mom and I called one of my best friends who's like 10 years older than me and she has, you know, little older kids and had probably gone through this before. And I was like, I much more trust myself and the woman who raised me and one of my best friends who I know is raising good kids and, and raising kids the way I want to raise my kids. Like, I'm going to go with that instead because that's my gut way to think about this stuff. Um, so why why don't we do that more? Why are we always turning to 
you know, the next book or, or the next Google search or the next expert to answer something about how to deal with our kids who we're experts in, right? Like there's no book on how to raise Grayson Sullivan. The only person who could possibly write that is me, you know, when he's 65, right? So, so what, what is that? Well, and that's the great thing about parent coaching is that you get in tune with what those answers are for you because there's so many ways to parent well. So there's not one way, but I think that people turned to quick answers because that's human nature, right? Mm -hmm. Quick solution. We're always trying to fix our problems. That's how our brains are wired. So what's the fastest and easiest way to fix this problem? The problem with that is that it's not our own solution. And when it's our own solution, we are then filled with confidence and empowerment and assuredness. And so then when we act on that, our child feels that energy. They feel that confidence and it's much more effective and powerful. So I love what you did. You called your, your family and friends. And so I do a lot of work around this, getting clarity. How do you get clarity? It's different for everyone. And one great option is to call friends and family that you trust, that you can talk through things with. For me, it's self-reflection. It's journaling. It's thinking through something in quiet to get in touch with that inner voice I have, that inner wisdom that I know is there for me. Um, so there's a lot of different ways, but it's people don't realize that they have so much inner wisdom. And you're right. You know your child better than anyone. So you have more answers than you realize inside of you. But it takes time. It takes time to find those answers. It takes calm. It takes openness takes reflection and conversations to get there. It's not tons of time. And the more you do it, the easier it's going to be to notice it. But I just worked on this with my client yesterday. He said he, he's working on keeping his own calm. And he said, oh, my first instinct was to get up and go fix the situation. He said, but I sat there and I let it happen. And he was so uncomfortable, he said. But then his, his inner voice, so his instinct was to get up because he's driven by fear and emotion. And I have to fix that. Otherwise it's going to get out of control and I can't handle that. Right. Mm -hmm. He's working on this. So now he sits there in discomfort and he listens to his inner voice. And it said to him, it's, it's not an emergency. I can mm -hmm. sit here and I trust that my wife can handle it. And that it's probably better just with her and him. I probably add fuel to the fire. I'm going to sit here. And this is him working towards what he wants more of. But that inner voice was there underneath the emotions there for right. him. So I just love all this because it's those, that's the voice we need to find right. so that we don't yeah. have to Google. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree. And um, just, a, and just one last comment is that you Google it, but that could be an answer for somebody else maybe, right? but it's not necessarily right. the answer for you. Or your kid. Exactly. Yeah, it, Everyone's right. situation is so unique. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. So now in terms of trusting your instinct, social media. <laughs> I don't know any parent who is, whose gut instinct is, yes, let's give my kid all the social media at all times, unfettered <laughs> access. Like no parent's inner voice is saying that. Like we all know there's something harmful that goes on with social media. I mean, I feel it as an adult and I grew up with it as a kid. Um, and, you know, there is some 
harmful things that are affecting our brain, our mood, our interpersonal connections as a result. So how do we empower ourselves as parents to, at the very least, delay social media for our kids? And, you know, what tools can we use to help that as our kids get older? Yeah, great questions. Um, I won't go into why social media and screens are so bad for kids and our brains because it's everywhere. You can Google that. Yeah. <laughs> so what? Yeah. There's a ton of there. I mean, and there's a ton of research coming out that's yeah. even worse than you know. Yeah. It's basically like doing drugs if you're you're doing it at thirty. Yeah. Well, so. it actually does affect the brain very similarly to drugs. Yeah. Um. So what I will talk about is things you can do. Great. So the first thing I would say, step one, is to delay, like you said, delay as long as possible. And this can be hard to do because of cultural pressures. So a couple examples. I just had a woman ask me what I do with my eight-year-old because her eight-year-old wants to play Minecraft and be on the computer all the time with his friends. Okay, now every family is different and there is no one way to do this. But when I told her my approach, which was you may not be online with your friends, if you'd like to have your friend over, we'll have a play date. Mm-hmm. She, she has a hard time creating those boundaries. So it's a lot about having the empowerment to say, I know what feels right. It doesn't feel right for my son to be playing with his friends online all night. Okay. So, so I encourage you to get in touch with that voice and act on it. Okay. Your child will be okay with disappointment. They need to learn how to work with that. Okay. Uh, Again, building life skills when they can say to themselves, like you could say something like, look what we've been talking about today. I know how badly you want this because you, it's fun and you want to talk to your friends. I get that. But we believe in having more, you know, person to person contact with our friends. So you may have them over for a play date. Okay. So that's demanding and responsive. You're setting limits and you're also empathizing. Say, I get it. Mm -hmm. But here's another choice. Right. Okay. Um, so that's an example that I, that I, for my own life again. And then another real life example for my house is that we don't let our children have phones until eighth grade. And that's really against the norm here. Um, so I actually started a movement called okay to delay with my girlfriend here in town to support parents who do want to hold off. And so many parents want to hold off, but they feel alone. So if you have one friend who will hold off with you, that's going to help you and help your child to not feel alone. So there's strength in numbers. There's wait until eighth, which is a great program. But you, I want to tell every parent that's listening, you are not alone in wanting to delay phone use and your child will be okay. So some solutions to that are, again, real life example. You may not have a phone till eighth grade. I get that this is hard, like really hard. I don't actually know because I never had a phone then, but I get <laughs> that it's super hard. This is really important for these reasons. Um, what are some other ways you can be in contact with your friends? Can you use the, the family iPad? Um, can you use my phone? You know, so I care that you, that I care about your relationships. What other options are there? Because there are always options. Um, social media. I gave an example before. Uh, again, delay, delay, delay as long as possible. There are li- age limits 
provided for these apps and these you know programs. Um, the Surgeon General was just out saying 13 is still too young. So trust in that, okay? Right. And get on board with a friend. Say, can can we delay together, right? So that yeah. your child's not alone. <clears throat> Model good behavior. Mm-hmm. Model what you expect from your child. It circles back to the very beginning of our conversation. You know, if you're going to yell, your child's going to learn to yell. If you're going to be on social media a lot, your child's going to want to be on social media a lot. You have to look at yourself first, your own behavior. How am I contributing to this? Okay. And then once your child does have social media, put limits on it. Again, limits with choices. Um, What social media app do you think is best? You can have one. Okay. Now we've established this. How much time do you think is appropriate to be on social media each day? You'll be blown away by what your kids say, by the way. Most of them are so reasonable. My daughter said, I'll run you through a whole example here because this is hopefully helpful. Okay, so we've established which social media you want. How much time do you think is appropriate each day? 20 minutes. Great. (laughs) Right. Great. Okay. And then what do you think is a fair consequence if you go over the limit? Mm -hmm. I lose it for a week. Great. Let's shake on it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, this is working together within limits. She has choice. You know, it's like the same pattern over and over, but it works. Right. It works. It's respectful. It's kind. It's firm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, I would say you have to just talk about what's on social media. You have to talk to your kids about seeing porn on the internet, what that is, um, what you value as a family, how do you treat people. Um, what are you seeing on social media that could be affecting you? Let's talk mm-hmm. about it. These these bodies and these these videos that you're seeing. I mean, let's just talk, talk, talk about it so you know what this is and what we value in our house. So right. you just have to keep, they're going to see all of it at some point. And I would recommend being ahead of it. Even if it's uncomfortable for you, get ahead of it and just talk about it all the time. Not one conversation, just lots of mini conversations about these things. Right. Make it normal. Make conversation. Because you're just avoiding it otherwise. You're avoiding the inevitable. So it's better for them to be prepared. In your book, you say, you know, tell-getters, they don't do X, Y, and Z. And we we have the same kind of, like a family mantra. We have the same kind of thing. It's you are a Sullivan. I expect you to act like one. And and that that means something in our house. It means be respectful. It means be kind. It means work hard, you know, and and having that family motto is so important. And then you can extend it to everything like social media. Like I expect if you are on social media for 20 minutes a day, whatever you're doing on there, you act like a Sullivan or you act like a tell-getter while you are on that app. And it's something that can be in them and ingrained in them. And I love that you put that in your book because it's so important. I think it's such an easy way to effectively tell your kids how you want them to be behaving Mm -hmm. with this sort of um, respect or or value for themselves as I am part of this family and I represent this family and I am grateful to be in this family and and this is what that means. Um, and so I, I just love that. Well, you're doing a great job because that is one of the best things you can do uh, to nurture that sense of belonging that we talked about earlier. So that mm-hmm. literally is the child's number one purpose is to belong. So even if your family motto creates a limit that they don't like, right? Right, right. They still feel like I am a part of something important. I am significant. 
because I'm a part of this family and we're doing important things in the world just by being respectful and kind and contributing the ways we are. I belong to that and I'm responsible for, for doing my part in that. So it's huge. It's such a good one. Nice job, Alex. So good. And you know, a lot of my, a lot of my clients will post things in the house. Like if they have a blackboard, they'll say, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, the Sullivans are kind and respectful. Mm -hmm. It's like a guiding light. Right. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever it is, I have a client who says, what works? Teamwork. And so they're just Mm -hmm. always helping each other and that's their whole motto. And so they, they're just, that's like their guideposts throughout the day. Yeah. gives you purpose. It gives yeah. you purpose within your family. Yeah. yeah. And a connected purpose. So yeah. As a group. It's nice. Um, well, I, I loved this conversation. Me this too. was so nice. Thank you so much. I love talking through everything. Um, and before I ask my, my final question, which I ask everyone, but how is it best for people who want to follow you, who want to um, reach out to maybe, you know, parent coaching services or what, what's the best way to contact you or follow you? Well, my website is jbtparentcoach.com, and that's really the best way because you can email me through there, call me, um, and I'm on Instagram, jbtcoaching, Instagram and Facebook, and I, I post helpful tips throughout the week, and yeah, I think that should be sufficient. Okay, and your, and your book, Parenting with Ease. Yes, Parenting with Ease is on Amazon, and there's um, some reviews on there to help you get a feel for what to expect from the book. Perfect. Um, okay. And then to, to finish us out, what is your favorite family tradition and why? It's gotta be dance parties. Ah, I love that. Do you do like Sunday morning dance parties? We, they're typically after dinner. Okay. Um, and the music's blasting in the kitchen and it's so fun, but we go to Vermont every weekend to ski. So now the dance parties are usually in the car. throughout the winter we are jamming in the car and I would say that that is the thing that connects us the most through laughter and joy is Mm -hmm. it is so awesome so dance parties I love it it's so nice it's so fun what's yours um oh gosh I mean I would say our Sunday family dinners we you know I'm Italian we we do Sunday family dinners every Sunday and uh when I was growing up it was we always went to my grandma's house I had a ton of cousins whatever now you know people don't live as close to family anymore so every Sunday we have a family friend over and we do a big Italian Sunday dinner and the kids love it. We love it. Everyone we we sit around the table all the kids all the adults everyone sits down together and it's, it's great. I love it. It's my really favorite. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, thank you so much again. And I, I look forward to keeping in touch with you and following you along. I know you do, um, speaking events, um, in New Canaan and, and Darianne. And so, um, I'm excited to follow along your journey. So thank, thank you, you so Alex. Much. Thanks so much for having me. It was a wonderful being here. Thank you. Okay. Bye. bye.